Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Today, we're going to talk about an issue that all of us deal with, but none of us like to talk about, and that's sin. You know, sin is kind of like a bad haircut. Everybody sees it, but nobody mentions it. I remember hearing a story about three pastors who went on a fishing trip together, and there they were on the lake, but the fish weren't biting. So one of them said, why don't we take this opportunity to do what the apostle James tells us to do, which is confess our sins to each other and pray for one another. Would you have liked to be on that boat? They agreed, so the the first pastor started. He said, the sin I need to confess is lust. Every once in a while, I'll go to the beach and watch the pretty girls walk by. I know it got quiet in here. (laughs) The second pastor said, well, the sin that I need to confess is gambling. You know, I, I just can't stop myself from going to the racetrack and placing bets on the horses. And then the two of them, they turned to the third man, and they could see that he was hesitating a little bit. So they said, hey, this is a safe space. There's nobody else around. Just share what's on your heart. So that third man said to them, well, the sin that I struggle with is gossiping. I just can't keep a secret. (laughs) See, that's why we don't like to share our sins. No. The reality is that all of us struggle with this. All of us struggle with brokenness. All of us struggle with sin and the effects of sin that are destructive on our lives like loss and loneliness and isolation and despair. All of us struggle with this. Pastors struggle with this. Prophets struggle with this. All people struggle with this. Every single one of us are broken. All of us in this room, those of you joining us online, We are all broken people. And you see that mirrored in the experience of the heroes of faith in Scripture. All of them are broken people. David, David murdered someone, committed adultery. You see see, um, Moses, Moses also killed someone. We're all broken people. So can we begin today just by admitting that, admitting our brokenness? They say that confession is good for the soul. So would you join me in a moment of group confession this morning? Would you repeat after me? I am broken. I am a sinner. Is that a little uncomfortable to say out loud? That was a little more awkward for me than I thought it would be. Because there's some shame associated with admitting our brokenness. so, So we like to pretend that we aren't broken. The temptation is for us to put on a mask and act like everything is okay. We like to think that if we look good on the outside, it doesn't really matter what's going on on the inside. But the truth is, just because we ignore our brokenness doesn't make it go away. It's kind of like a cavity. You know, I recently got a filling, and it's incredible how long you can ignore a cavity for. Now, before the dentists in this room get angry with me, I'm not saying that we should ignore cavities, okay? I'm just saying that when they're small, it's possible. It's possible. And even as they get larger, we can figure out ways to live around it, right? Chew on the other side of our mouth. Avoid cold foods. Avoid sweet foods. You can tell that I've done this before. Don't tell my dentist. But just because we ignore the cavity doesn't make it go away. It's still there, and often it grows. I saw this demonstrated in a very dramatic fashion when I was on a mission trip to Haiti. I was assisting a dentist, treating a patient whose tooth had completely crumbled. 
Apparently, the cavity had grown so large that it had hollowed out the inside of his tooth, and all that was left was an empty shell. So the next time he bit down hard on that tooth, it shattered. And that's what brokenness does to us. It hollows us out. That's why author and pastor Peter Scazzaro writes in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Leader. When we deny our pain, losses, and feelings year after year, we become less and less human. We transform slowly into empty shells with smiley faces painted on them. Have you ever felt that way before? Like an empty shell with a smiley face on top? I know I have. There's been times when I felt like I just had to fake it. Just pretend that everything is okay. When in reality, I was dying inside. So throughout this series, we're going to address the, the, the brokenness in our lives that keeps us from being whole. So if that's your experience, the good news is you're not alone. Every single one of us are broken. And the even better news is there is healing available for us because God makes us whole. See, that's our series in a nutshell. Sin breaks our souls, but God makes us whole. Sin breaks our souls. The reason why there is suffering and pain and loss in this world is because of sin, because we have separated ourselves away from God. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, we're told about the very first sin that humanity committed. God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Don't eat it. Stay away from it. It's better for you to stay away. But Adam and Eve ignore his warning, and they choose to eat of the fruit anyway. They choose to trust human wisdom over divine word. Come on now. They choose to remove God from the throne of their lives and place themselves on top. They choose independence from God. And that choice for separation from God breaks our souls. And the rest of Scripture is the story of how God is trying to restore us to wholeness again. So in this series, we're going to look at three, three healing miracles of Jesus to discover how God mends our souls and makes us whole how God mends our souls and makes us whole. So that's what this series is all about. And I know that a lot of times we think of Jesus' healing miracles as more physical miracles, right? That when Jesus healed people, he healed their bodies. But his miracles were always more holistic than that. That's why Ellen White in Ministry of Healing writes, the burden of disease and wretchedness and sin Jesus came to remove. It was his mission to bring to men complete, complete restoration. He came to give them health and peace and perfection of character. From him flowed a stream of healing power, and in body and mind and soul, men were made whole. Notice that she writes that the healing power that flowed from Jesus was meant to make body mind, and soul whole. And we've talked about this before, that the biblical concept of soul is not something that exists separate from the body, but it's the encapsulation of body, mind, and spirit that makes a living soul. So when Ellen White says that, that Jesus made their souls whole, what she's saying is that Jesus healed them inside and out. And the first example of this that we're going to look at today is found in Luke chapter 5, in the passage that was just read by Ken. In Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up, or you can turn them on if you have the device, to Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. And what you're going to notice about this passage is that Jesus doesn't just heal this man's body. 
he also forgives this man's sin. So how does that happen? Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 17. Check it out. Luke writes, On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, now I need to pause here because two verses prior to this one, the, the, Luke writes that, that people had discovered that Jesus could heal the sick. So people started to gather from everywhere. And it was on one of those days when the crowds were gathering that Jesus was teaching. He continues, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So he had gathered so many crowds that it was now starting to get the religious leaders' attention. And this is significant because, notice, in this kind of situation, usually the, the local scribe would show up and deal with it. There were, there were scribes for every village and every town. So the local scribe would usually deal with it and maybe send a report if it was important enough. But notice that Luke writes that it's not just the local scribe who shows up. It's Pharisees and teachers of the law from all over the province of Galilee. And not just the province of Galilee, but all over the province of Judea. And not just there, but also from the capital city of Jerusalem itself. So the bigwigs from Jerusalem, from the capital, make the four-day journey, because that's how long it took to get from Jerusalem to Capernaum. They make that four-day journey to find out more about this itinerant rabbi. So this was a big deal. To put that in perspective, this would be like, this would be like U.S. senators driving all the way from Washington, D.C., all the way to a tiny little insignificant city like Yukaipa to find out what's happening here. I mean, nothing against Yukaipa. It's just, it's no Loma Linda, am I right? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Actually, I love Yukaipa. You know, some of my best friends are Yukaipans. But very rarely does something happen in Yukaipa that is of national importance. But that's what's happening here. In the small town, Jesus is gathering such attention that the national religious leaders even come to find out what's happening. And the Bible says, Luke says, that the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Now, it doesn't say it here. It says it later on, but they're inside of a house. And what you have to understand about houses in Capernaum was is that they're not, they're, they were not very large, right? The largest excavated house in Capernaum has a span of about 18 feet. That's like the distance from here to here. So maybe there was room for like 50 people in there if you really jam-packed them in, you know, like if you crammed them in like a crowded subway in New York before the pandemic, right? They're shoulder to shoulder where if, if if a person sneezes on one side of, of, the, of the subway, it's like a chain reaction. You can feel it on the other side of the subway. So if they were standing that packed together, maybe you could fit 50 people. Am I making anybody uncomfortable here? No, you guys are ready for physical contact now, right? So maybe, 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 maybe you could fit 50 people there. But they weren't standing. What does the Bible say? The religious leaders were sitting there, which takes a lot more room. And I can't imagine that these religious leaders were sitting shoulder to shoulder. There's probably a lot of social distancing happening here, right? So there probably wasn't room for very many people outside of Jesus and the religious leaders. Maybe a few people crammed into the back, the rest of them overflowing outside. And there these religious leaders sit, dominating the space, and judging Jesus. See, they had come to find out if the stories about Jesus were true, but they assumed that they weren't. Because this wasn't the first time a charismatic leader had gathered crowds and had tricked the gullible commoners into crowning him as the next Messiah. This wasn't the first time. It had happened before. So they probably assumed Jesus was another one of these pretenders. After all, he was from Nazareth. Everybody knew 
that nothing good came from Nazareth. And so there they sat in their skepticism, judging Jesus. By their body language, they communicated, show us, and we might believe. Have you ever had to present before a hostile crowd before? Have you ever had to do that? Super uncomfortable. There's a reason why there are things called home court advantage, right? So Jesus must have felt like, Jesus must have felt like LeBron James in the Boston Garden, right? Hostile crowd. He must have felt like Kanye West at a Taylor Swift concert. Hostile crowd. He must have felt like the Pope at an Adventist GC session. Hostile crowd. So he's surrounded by this hostile crowd, and then all of a sudden, these men show up who are desperate to believe. Verse 18 reads, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. You know, during those times, people slept on mats. So it's highly likely that he's being carried to Jesus on the very bed that he's been living in since he was paralyzed. So this bed that was once his prison becomes his vehicle towards freedom. 19 continues. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. Notice that this crowd, including the religious leaders, they create a barrier that separate this man from Jesus. And I wonder, do we ever separate people from Jesus? By our cynicism, our skepticism, our selfishness, do we ever keep people from the only person who is able to heal them. Do we? That's what's happening here. The religious leaders create a physical barrier that keeps this man from getting to Jesus, but these men will not be deterred. So they climb onto the roof, break through the tiles, and lower their friend to Jesus. And verse 20 reads, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, Your sins are forgiven you. Again, Jesus doesn't just heal this man's body. He forgives his sin. Because he knew that what this man needed was not just a mending of his body. He needed a complete restoration of his soul. So how does this man receive restoration? How does this man place place himself in a position where he can be healed? What does Luke write? He says, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you when he saw their, what? Faith. When he saw their faith. See, faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. Can I say that again? Faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. After the Holy Spirit has convicted us of our need to be healed from sin, faith is the first step toward healing from sin. Faith is what heals us. Faith is what makes us whole. So let me explain what I mean by faith, because sometimes it can feel like a sort of nebulous term, right? Faith is simply actionable trust in God. Actionable trust in God. It's trusting God enough that we're willing to take an action based on that trust. See, that's what these men did. They trusted that Jesus could heal their friend, so they broke through tiles, there's the action, to get their friend to Jesus. Actionable trust in God. And that kind of trust is crucial, because if you remember The very first sin, Adam and Eve committed the very first sin because they lacked trust in God. See, they trusted themselves. They trusted the serpent more than they trusted God. 
So what's happening in this story, and this is really cool, what's happening in this story is the reversal of the very first sin. See, Adam and Eve, they moved from a place of trust to mistrust, from from dependence on God to independence from God. But these men move in the opposite direction. They move from mistrust to trust, from independence to dependence on God. And because of that action, that choice to have faith, this man is is healed and his sins are forgiven. Faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. And that principle is really the foundation of every 12-step program out there. See, all of them begin with the same three steps. And these three steps, they really describe what faith is. Let me take a look. The three steps of every 12-step program is, one, we admitted we are powerless over our addictions or sin. We're powerless over our sin. Then two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And then based on that belief, based on that faith, number three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. There's the action step. That's faith. And that's exactly what these men do. They realize that they're powerless. They recognize that Jesus is powerful. So they rest in Jesus' care. Because of that step of faith, this man is freed from sin and his soul is made whole. Faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. Verse 25 continues, and immediately the man rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying, glorifying God. See, everybody in that room was broken. Every single one of them, including the religious leaders, they all could have been healed by Jesus, but only one of them was. Only one man left that room whole because he had faith in Jesus. Faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. So our journey to escape from sin does not begin by just trying really, really, really hard not to sin, right? Because faith is the first step, which means that as our faith in God grows stronger, our sin's hold over us grows weaker. As our faith grows bigger, our sin's get smaller. And our faith grows as we begin to realize how good and great God really is. You know, the reason why Adam and Eve didn't trust God was because they didn't fully realize how good God was. The reason why these Pharisees didn't trust Jesus was because they didn't realize fully how great Jesus was, that he was actually God. So if we want to shrink our sins, we have to grow our God. We have to grow our perception of who God is. We have to to realize how great and good God is. And that happens as we spend time with him. See, it's not that God is a small God. God is a great big God. So the more time we spend with him, the more we realize we appreciate who he is. You know, I've, I've read through my fair share of resumes in my life. And what I've begun to realize is that there are some people who look better on paper than they do in person. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. God is not one of those people. The more we get to know God, the better he gets. So our faith in God will grow if we simply spend time with him. If we... Learn about him through scripture. If we talk to him regularly through prayer. If we follow him through difficult circumstances and then come out the other side amazed at how he came through for us. The better we get to know God, the better he becomes. 
And so if we want to shrink our sin, then we have to get, him know, get to know him better and grow our God. And this is important for all of us because all of us have sin inside. And we know we have sin inside because there's something that's just not right with us. Maybe it's a temper that we can't control. Maybe it's an addiction that we can't stop. Maybe, maybe it's a habit that we can't let go. Something, something, we all have something that's just not right with us. Something that we want to let go, something that we've tried to let go, but we can't because we're broken. But the good news is freedom is available to us through faith. Because faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. So as our faith grows bigger, our sins grow smaller. So if you want to shrink your sins, you've got to grow your God. Spend time with him. And let him show you how good and great he can be. Let me share how I've experienced this in a little way in my life. Several years ago, when uh, our family, our family was going through a stressful time in our lives. We had just had our second child, and my wife and I, we were still learning what it meant to be good parents. And in the midst of all that, we decided to move. We moved to a different town, to a different church, to a different job, to a different home. A lot of change happening, and it started to wear on me. And I found myself having a shorter fuse. Nothing major, nothing that most people probably even noticed, but I did. I found myself getting more impatient, more on edge. And I'm not proud to admit that a few times I just, I lost it. I got really angry. And one of those times became a wake-up call for me. I realized that this was not the person that I wanted to be. And so God used that experience to draw me into a deeper relationship with him. But what's so fascinating to me about that experience is that God didn't just immediately take away that impatience. No, instead, he invited me to just spend more time with him. Nothing big. I mean, just little things like begin my day with prayer. Ask for God's guidance before or sometimes in the middle of stressful situations. And slowly, slowly, God used those, those small steps to help me see him for the good and great God he was. And I know that's a weird thing for a pastor to say, that I didn't realize how good and great he was. I should have already known that. But there is something different from knowing that theoretically and seeing that live out in your own daily life. And I began, by depending on him, I began to realize that I was, I didn't need to be in control of my life, that God was in control of my future, and that was incredibly freeing. And slowly, slowly, my, my impatience lessened. I felt less on edge. See, as God grew bigger, my sins grew smaller. I don't know. I don't know what manifestation of sin you're struggling with in your life, but I do know this. There is freedom available for you because faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. So as our faith grows bigger, our sins grow smaller. So if you want to shrink your sin, then grow your God. Spend time with him. And you may be surprised at how good and great God truly is. An enterprising young engineer was trying to get a contract with a company and he had come to submit his bid. 
He was concerned he wouldn't succeed because he was worried about one competitor whose bid, ironically, he saw on the desk as he sat down. However, right over the place where the final number was, was a soda can. And he just thought, if I could just move that can, I could know and maybe quickly adjust. There wasn't much hope for that, though, with the man seated behind the desk until his assistant called him away. As soon as he left and the man could determine no one was watching, he stepped up, grabbed the can, picked it up, only to discover to his horror that the bottom of the can had been cut out. And there were hundreds, thousands of BBs inside the can that immediately exploded all over the desk and all over the room. He stood there looking at the BBs and thought, there is simply no way out of this mess. And that's the reality that some feel. When it comes to your relationship with God and some of the decisions you have made, I have made along the way, we look and realize that the implications, the consequences are real. There's no way to get it all back in the can. There's no way to fix things, to be as they used to be. What do we do? Well, if we follow Scripture, we come before God in prayer, in repentance, in confession, seeking God's forgiveness. That has been the theme of this three-part series. God always, never, sometimes. So today we come to the third of those three, God sometimes. To look at that, we go back to 1 John, the epistle in which we've spent our time in this series, 1 John chapter 3. We go back to 1 John 3 to ask, what is it that God sometimes does? So read with me 1 John 3, starting in verse 19. John writes and says, This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's command lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. There's a juxtaposition of two statements in the earlier part of that passage which we need to notice. These two statements lie there one alongside the other, probing into the two terrains we need to examine today. The first one is in verse 20. If our hearts condemn us, the second one is in verse 21. If our hearts do not condemn us. So John is talking about what happens and what causes and how we handle when our hearts condemn us and the same about when our hearts don't condemn us. So we're going to start with the second one. So if we stand there surveying the BBs in our life and yet are able to walk away from that and face that reality and not have our hearts condemn us, what allows us to do that? What gives us that assurance? Well, the last two weeks, we've looked at that. First, God always. John, first John 1, 9, if we confess, God forgives always. And then last week in Pastor Carl's exceptional sermon, God never, remember 1 John 2, 1? John says, I'm writing these things to you, little children, so that you don't sin. In other words, he's wanting us to grow up into Christ. I'm writing to encourage you, to strengthen you, to fortify your faith. I'm writing so that you don't fall. But if anyone does fall, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So God always forgives confessed sin. God never abandons us to our sin, even when we fail. That's the first simple reality. Those are the first two reasons why our hearts need not condemn us. 
But John adds to it in this passage here in 1 John 3. I want to read just two of the verses over again, starting in verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. So we're talking now about keeping his commands and doing what pleases him, which concerns us because we're not always good at that, and we, many of us don't want to get into a legalistic space. So how does he follow that up? And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. If we want to live lives where our hearts do not condemn us, John says there are two aspects to the command that God gives us, to God's will for our lives. Two things. The first one, he says, is to believe in his son, to believe in Jesus. And when he talks about believe, he's not just talking about a mental acknowledgement that a Nazarene lived 2,000 years ago who went to Calvary who claimed to be from God. He's not talking about that. He's talking about placing our faith actively in him. It reminds us of what John wrote in his gospel in chapter 6 when he was engaging in rather contentious and vigorous debate with the religious leaders. It got pretty heated, and at one point, the religious leaders, and the text feels almost sarcastic. They're talking about the works that he's been doing, and he's saying, maybe you should believe on me because of the works I've been doing. And finally, they say to him, so what do we have to do to work the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe on the one he has sent. That's the same thing he says here. You want to live a life where, you're, where your heart does not condemn you? Then let your life be hidden in Christ. Belong to Christ. Be nurtured by Jesus. Grow and thrive in Jesus. Place your active faith and trust in him, and that's a life where your heart need not condemn you. But he has two things here. Not just believe in the one he has sent, but secondly, he says, love one another. It's amazing how simple his directives are. You want to do what God commands? Then do this. Place your faith actively in his son and love each other. That theme of love is central to John's epistle. In fact, it's central, really, to the plan of God. You know that Dr. Alden Thompson, retired theology professor at Walla Walla University, helped us with this a great deal in years past by talking about the one, the two, the ten, and the many. So what was Dr. Thompson referring to? Well, imagine we have a conversation with God, and we're trying to understand, you know, God, what do you desire at the core? What are you all about? What are you asking of us? What do you desire, desire to see in the world? And God, we're, we're a little bit like Randy, a little bit hard-headed and dense, so can you keep it short and clear? So what is it, God? And God says, okay, I'll give you one word. Okay, what's that? Love. Oh. Great. Man, that's helpful. Thank you, God. Th well, a actually, God, that's helpful, but what do you mean, love? Can, can you unpack that a little bit? Well, sure, I can. I I'll give you, instead of just one word, I'll give you two commands then. Okay. What would that be? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh. That really helps. That unpacks it. That explains it. Now, uh, actually, God, now that we think about it, that's really good, but what does that mean? You want more? Yes. Okay, I'll give you 10. I'll give you 10 words, 10 commands. That will unpack it. First four will have to do with how you love me. The next six will have, will have to do with how you love each other. Oh, good, excellent, great. That really helps us. Ten, all right, God, thank you. But you know, God, um, some of those, can, can, can you elaborate a little? And God says, really? The one, the two, the ten, that's not enough? All right, here's a whole book. Take this book. 
read this book, learn this book, study this book, live out the realities, the implications of this book, and then you'll be getting an idea of what I desire. But just understand this. It all boils back to one word. Love. And so when John is writing to his community, when he's writing to them about living lives where their hearts do not condemn them, he has in the background always, God always forgives, confess sins. He has in the background never, God never abandons us to our sin. But now he says, okay, live in a way that abides by his commands. How do we do that? We place our faith in Jesus and we love each other. Pretty simple stuff. But you know the truth. And so do I. Somehow even that managed to get, manages to get a bit gnarled up in our hearts. And we end up having our heart accuse us, living with troubled consciences, living with loads of guilt, not being able to sleep at night over what we've done. So then what do we do? Well, we go back to the first part of that juxtaposition. Remember that? Verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, the first part of the verse. And our question is, why do our hearts condemn us? Or another way to say it would be, when God says, Randy, you're forgiven, why is it that I don't always feel forgiven? Why is it that I sometimes still wrestle with guilt? Where does that come from? Well, there are a number of possibilities. One possibility may be that if we're living lives that have a certain cycle of sin and repent, sin and repent, sin and repent, sin and... It's hard to feel at peace because we think, I'm not even living up to what I would like to achieve, much less to what God is calling me to. So even though his word says, I'm forgiven, I still have a certain turmoil in my soul. I don't feel forgiven. In other words, God wants us to grow. He's abundantly willing to forgive us, but the desire is not to continually drive into the same pothole on the road home every day. It's to take a different road, to grow, always ready and willing to forgive. After all, if Jesus said to us, Forgive your brother, forgive your sister, 70 times 7. Can we expect God to do any less? The late Fred Craddock said, I reject any notion of God that makes me a better Christian than God is. So if God is telling us to forgive 70 times 7, we can assume and believe with clarity and confidence he will forgive us every time, but he also wants us to grow. Listen to these words, Frederica Matthews Green the main evidence that we are growing in Christ is not exhilarating prayer experiences, but steadily increasing humble love for other people. You want to ask yourself, am I growing? Don't ask yourself the question, did I tear up and well up with gratitude as the children sang this morning? Hopefully we all did. But that's not the evidence of growth. The evidence of growth is that person that put, took your parking spot out in the structure and how you responded to them. That'll tell you whether or not you're growing. So maybe that's one of the reasons we don't feel forgiven. We're not growing, and there's this cycle in our lives. Or maybe, maybe it's because we're shooting at the wrong target, a target that's been around a while, and I hear some of it present even today, and it gravely concerns me, is a target that says you have to become sinlessly perfect. Sinlessly perfect if you're going to go home with Jesus. Now, I want to ask you, have you been around somebody who believes that and who believes they're getting close to that? How much did you enjoy that? I can tell you, with, with, I had a conversation with a gentleman, this has been years ago now, who earnestly believed that. 
earnestly. This was not a frivolous or a funny conversation. He said to me, I have overcome every sin except one. And I wanted to say, give me a guess. <laughs> it wasn't the one he was thinking. And I honestly wanted to say, well, a couple of others you might want to consider. That kind of approach keeps us on this pendulum between pride, because today I'm doing well, and despair, because now I'm never going to make it. You can't experience the fullness of God's forgiveness and grace in your life if you're shooting for the wrong target. What Scripture does call us to, what the New Testament is utterly clear about, is for us to grow to maturity in Christ. Absolutely it calls us to that. But you know from raising children, those of you who are parents, at every stage in the process, just like little Ellie this morning, every stage, that child is perfect for that stage. But if that child is doing at 18 what they were doing at 18 months, you got problems. Perfect at every stage, but growing toward maturity. Maybe the reason we don't feel the fullness is we're shooting for the wrong target. Or maybe, maybe the reason we can't fully emotionally accept God's forgiveness in our lives is that it just seems too easy. You've thought about that, haven't you? Stand there looking at the BBs all over the floor. You know there's going to have to be some consequences that will come. You're going to have to make amends with some people. You know all of that. That's a reality. But to think that if I come sincerely to God at that moment in time and seek his forgiveness, that God says, done, you're forgiven. Doesn't that just seem too easy? Doesn't seem like that could actually be true. Don't you need a little cool-off time, God? Don't you need me to get a little distance from this? Don't you need me to work up some more negative feelings about it? Are you saying that if I come in sincerity, asking that it's between you and me, not all the consequences that I have to go make amends for, but that between you and me, it's done? God says, yes. The example sent me a video clip a couple weeks ago. Alistair Begg, a preacher I have appreciated over the years. I want to take what Alistair Begg spoke of and adapt it just a bit here this morning. So, so think about this imaginary conversation. The thief on the cross, you remember him. So he's in the kingdom of God. He's arrived in the kingdom of God, and he's walking the streets, and somebody says, wow, you, you made it. That's incredible. I want to understand. I want to understand how it was that you got here. I mean, did, did, did you just sneak in? Did you get in under the wire? I mean, what happened? And about that time, they encounter a couple of angels. The angel looks at him, one of them, and says, I think I know you. Oh, I do know you. I remember. Ha hmm. So let me ask you a couple of questions, sir. Explain to me the doctrine of justification by faith. And the thief says, the, the, pardon me? You don't I've never heard of it. Okay, well. Sanctification by grace. Sorry. The Trinity. The what? Okay. The Sabbath? Uh, I, 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 how did you get in here? And the man says, well, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. Right there. After the man on the middle cross says you can come, everything else is result, not cause. The cause is, he said I could come. We tend to think, oh, that's, that's, that's too easy. And if we don't accept that, it's hard to really feel forgiven. Maybe that's what's been the struggle. Or for some, for some, for some, the reason we don't really feel the forgiveness of God is that we can't forgive ourselves. 
Have you noticed that sometimes it's easier to believe that God forgives us than it is to say to ourselves, I'm going to let go of this? That we have a special penchant, a special ability to continue to beat ourselves up, to continue to dwell on it, to continue to rehearse it, to continue to try to somehow get to who knows what point where we can finally walk away and say, okay, I'm releasing that. As long as we're doing that, it becomes much harder to really live in the joy and the peace and flourish in the grace of God. The late Lewis Smedes, theological ethicist down at Fuller Seminary, really spoke well about this issue in one of his books. In this particular context, he's writing about this issue of self-forgiveness. So listen to what Smedes says. You need to see the difference between self-esteem and self-forgiveness. Self-esteem is not the same as self-forgiveness. You esteem yourself when you discover your own excellence. You forgive yourself after you discover your own faults. You esteem yourself for the good person you are. You forgive yourself for the bad things you've done. The reason it takes high courage to forgive yourself lies partly with other people's attitudes towards self-forgivers. Self-righteous people do not want you to forgive yourself. They want you to walk forever under the black umbrella of permanent shame. To forgive yourself is to act out the mystery of one person who is both forgiver and forgiven. You judge yourself. This is the division within you. You forgive yourself. This is the healing of the split that you should dare to heal yourself by this simple act is a signal to the world that God's love is a power within you. Can you do that? Can you own that you belong to something called the human race where every single one of us has those things of which we are ashamed? which we would not want to face again, but that if we've brought them to God, we actually have the amazing privilege of saying, I'm going to release that and no longer even hold it against me because God says I'm forgiven. Who am I to argue with God? Maybe it's that wrestling, that struggling, that battle that has kept you from feeling the fullness of God's forgiving grace. Or, or finally, maybe it's something else. This one John actually addresses specifically in the passage. Years ago, I learned something. Learned something that I've shared along the way, maybe with some of you. It's been very real to me. In fact, it was life-changing for me some decades ago. I learned something. I learned that if there is something that you hold secret within you, that you want no one else to know, that when somebody says to you, I love you, you find yourself saying to yourself, but what if you knew? Would you still say that? So that you can only feel fully loved to the degree that you are fully known. If you are not fully known, then you cannot feel fully loved because that question will haunt you. This is one of the unique powers of the 12-step groups. 12-step groups that whatever the addiction, be it gambling, be it alcohol, be it sex, be it drugs, be it money, whatever it is, whatever it is, this is one of the powers that those who become a part of that community say our lives are out of control, but we've come to believe that a power greater than us can restore us to sanity, and we've made a choice to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God. And then comes that exacting, demanding fourth step. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. 
What does that mean? It means that you sit down with pen and paper or you sit down at the computer keyboard and you tell the story of your life. Darkness and all, shadow and all, warts and all. So by the time you are done with that long and exacting process, this is me in black and white. This is the reality. Nothing hidden. And then the fifth step, where I suspect some drop off. Because the fifth step says this. Admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Paraphrased, no more secrets. None. Somebody knows us fully. That's the sponsor in that movement. I remember back in the years that I was, I remember back in the years when I was working on a marriage and family therapy license, spending quite a bit of time with these kinds of things. I remember reading the story of one man taking his fifth step who said, I may, he had just told his sponsor, had shared the full story, and said, I may have been loved before that moment, but when I finished and my sponsor stood up and walked over and embraced me and said, I love you, it was the first time I felt fully loved. It's curious because even though we know it here, God knows all, we don't always feel that here. You know the texted in responses a few weeks ago? One question was, why am I not more honest on my prayer life with God? One of you texted in and said, because I don't think God could handle it. Think about that. God knows it all. But we don't always feel that way. So there's a sense that if we're hidden, we won't be fully known. But that cuts us off from experiencing full love and full forgiveness. And here is where we come back to that text, verse 20. John says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. So if you don't feel fully forgiven, if you haven't experienced the fullness of God's grace in your life, maybe it's time to just say, God, here I am. Here it is. This is all of me. Please accept me. Love me. Change me. He says, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. SDA Bible Commentary says this about that. Unnecessary self-condemnation has marred many a Christian's experience. Many depend on their own moral judgments to determine their spiritual condition and fail to realize that their feelings are unsatisfactory criteria for deciding the state of their spiritual health. John is comforting his readers by turning their minds away from morbid concentration on their own weaknesses to an uplifting contemplation of the height and depth of God's understanding love. In other words, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart, and God doesn't condemn you. So turn the volume up on God and turn the volume down on your own heart. Because if you've placed yourself in his care and his keeping, he always forgives. He never abandons you to your sin. And then thirdly, what about that sometimes? What does that mean? Well, could it simply mean this? That sometimes God grants us emotional confirmation of his forgiveness. We feel it and we're at peace. And other times we don't get that emotional confirmation. But it doesn't change the reality that we are still his children and still forgiven. Sometimes we get peace. Sometimes we don't. Doesn't change the reality that God is greater than our hearts. But maybe... Maybe if we work through some of the realities just discussed,
Maybe it will open a way for God in our lives to say, you can truly experience my peace and you can be at rest. But my heart, God, no, no, you're forgiven. The man on the middle cross said so. Gracious God, we yearn for a deep and thriving and nourishing experience of your peace. Lord, in those places where we're gumming up the works, might you clean us out so that you can accomplish what you wish to in our lives. And let us never forget that you are greater than our fear, our guilt, our self-loathing, our condemnation. You are greater than our hearts. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.